Hello and happy holidays. Thank you for joining me on Turn a Moment into a Movement. My name is Jay Love and I represent the Justice for Gerard Movement. And um, Turning a Moment into a Movement was birthed through the Justice for Gerard Movement. Gerard is my son who was wrongfully incarcerated for a crime he didn't do, innocent and in prison. And so because of that journey, um, I created this journey with, and we come on here, um, we're mostly on Fridays, but that might change. Just watch out for 2022. But we come here to talk about wrongful convictions and injustice. Um, our goal is to awaken our community, have these hard conversations. So it will um, push us into um, justice seekers. So thank you for joining us. Today is a special edition of Turning a Moment into a Movement because um, I thought we were gone, but, you know, injustice doesn't take a break and never gets a day off. So um, sometimes we can't take days off either. So thank you for joining us. Um, I'm going to bring on the panel. We have some awesome guests today, but before I do, I bring in a panel. I just want to say hello to um, everyone who's watching on YouTube. Hello for those who are watching on Twitter. And guess what? You can see us on Spotify um, now. So hello to all of those who are watching on different platforms and hello, Facebook. So, and thank you. Now I'm going to bring in our panel. All righty. Hi, Trisha Duckworth. Hey, everybody. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How are you? Oh, my goodness. I'm good. And, like, I've been gone for so long. I feel so happy to be back with y'all. I'm so happy you're here. I missed you. Oh, I missed y'all, too. So, for if this um their first time watching us or listening to us, um, introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do. So my name is Trisha Duckworth. I am the executive director and founder of Survivor Speak, uh, Lee Consultant at Value Black Lives. I am a minister of justice. Yes. Um, and I'm just grateful to be here. You know, any and all things justice. And if you step on the opposite line of that, you got a problem with me. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I know that's right. Yeah, so thank you for being here today for the special edition. Thank um, you for having it. It's so much yeah. going on. Yes, we. I, as soon as I wrote and posted that we was going to be off, so much stuff came up. So, yeah. um, but thank you. I'm bringing on Reverend Tia. Hey, Reverend Tia. Well, hello. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you for having me on. Uh-huh. Uh, I tell you, standing in in locked arm in arm, like Trisha says, heart to heart, um, with so many people in this dispensation, you know, I am convinced that it's time for justice. It's time for us to come together. And, you know, I do a lot um, in the community and, of course, at Transforming Love Community, where I'm a minister amongst uh, a team of ministers. And... Also, you know, on other platforms to make sure that we continue to educate. I educate, motivate, and encourage others to access that power that is within them. 
you know, justice, all we're doing is saying do the right thing as an individual and then do the right thing collectively. And so we got to keep the reminder going and take all limitations off because know that we are not limited in this time. At this point in time, we have power. Yes, we do. Thank you, Reverend Tia. Thank you. I'm going to bring on our next panel member. Hi, attorney Hugo Matt. Peace and love. And I always preface all my statements with, can you hear me? Yes. Can, can you hear I, me? I okay. <laughs> Look, first of all, uh, to all my, my sisters, oh, beautiful array of beautiful black women. I love it. I'm just loving all of this right here. All this right here. And it is a joy to be here. Uh, Hugo Mack is my name. Uh, coming to you, not as an attorney who fell down from heaven to grace you with his presence, but who came up from hell through the power of God and Jesus Christ to be with you today. Okay. So um, I've dedicated my life to defending people who cannot defend themselves. Mm -hmm. Ran for county prosecutor because we need somebody and needed somebody there who is a minister of justice, not interested in winning, but interested in getting justice, all right? So, um, and I'm so glad to grow where the Lord has planted me, okay? So this is my venue. And you know, my perpetual mission is to try in my own humble way to be an example to other lawyers, you know, other criminal defense attorneys, other lawyers who see what's going on, but they're too scared to say anything. They, right. you know, you know they, they're too scared to say anything. You know, they're worrying about that paycheck, that 401k, uh, being able to have some cardboard chicken, you know, with the judge at some, you know, fundraiser. It don't mean a damn thing. Not for me. It don't mean nothing for me. Okay. So, you know, that's why I'm here. All right. I'm here. So uh, I know what it's like to be wrongfully convicted. I know what it's like to pay a debt that is not owed. And so my, my plea is not only for the wrongfully convicted, but for the overly convicted. The penitentiary mm -hmm. is full of people that are overly convicted. And I'm not saying everybody in the penitentiary is not guilty. The vast majority of people in the penitentiary are guilty of something. The question is what? What? Okay? So I don't want to see a man or woman doing 20, 30, 40 years for something he or she is not responsible for. So I'm here to, to add my voice to the beautiful people on the panel and to keep on doing. And, and you're right, J-Love. Injustice don't take a break, so we can't either. So I'm, I'm proud to be here with y'all. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you, Attorney Hugo Matt. I'm going to mute you, too, because I'm hearing the echo. Dang, that's still All right. So, hi, Val. How are you? I am fine. Hello, sisters and brothers. Um, it is a pleasure to be here tonight. I am not here tonight to spill any tea or make you feel dazed like you drank a shot of cheap liquor. I'm just here to bring you things from a different perspective, mine. And anything I say, I may not be your cup of tea, but I guarantee you I can be your 10 shots of tequila. I know that's right. Now. <laughs> Introduce yourself. You are one of our special guests tonight. <laughs> so I am Valerie Kelly Bonner. 
I am the host of The Real Black Coffee, No Sugar, No Cream, Straight Talk Radio Show, because I bring it Black, strong, and unfiltered. When it comes to wrongful convictions in the criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. I feel like some of our brothers and sisters, uh, if white people are friendly to you that are stakeholders in this system or nice to you, that's not freedom. They just being friendly and nice. And for the majority of them, there's probably some reasoning to their gain why they're even doing such. I'm not saying that everyone is not genuine, but I'm saying it's a lot of people who are not. And as Mr. Max said, you know, a lot of them, they're getting a paycheck, so they're going to do what's best for them to provide for their family, to save their name, what have you. But I will say there are some things that we have learned that we need to unlearn so we can relearn. Mm -hmm. All of us. But especially when it comes to us coming together, fighting for justice, there are some things we have learned that we need to unlearn so that we can relearn. Mm -hmm. And the learning is in the unlearning. Mm-hmm. We have to learn how to let go of all those things we think we know so we can learn something new. So thank you for joining us today. And our other special guest is here as well. Uh-oh. Now I'm having difficulties. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Abdul. How you doing? Alhamdulillah. I'm good. How are you? It's good to oh, see everybody again. It's hey, great seeing you. you. Thank you for joining us. Sorry. Introduce yourself. Um, I'm Abdul Hakim. Everybody knows me as Roberto. I'm a paralegal in the Detroit area. Um, I'm not so much into activism as I used to be because of my busy schedule, but I keep up with events and stuff just to keep myself informed. And um, that's I guess that's as best as it gets. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I do uh, a lot of civil and criminal, well, not a lot of criminal appeals, mostly civil appeals. And I do the criminal stuff I do on my own time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. Yes. So I wanted to say it with Trisha. Um, I wanted her, Trisha. Let's start off with the question that you asked that brought us here today. Yeah. So, you know, I was just thinking like we are just all in celebratory mode, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not telling people don't celebrate, but what do we perpetuate in the midst of this celebration when we haven't educated ourselves as to what's really going on? Right. we're, We're out spending boatloads of money, empowering an economy that doesn't care anything about us, empowering an economy that sends us to board meeting after board meeting after board meeting and ask for money that belongs to us, right? Like, so in the midst of this celebration, how do we channel our thoughts to start to think about how we can collectively unite even around 
the dollars that we spend, right? We got a $1.7 trillion spending habit that what could we do with that kind of power if we were to collectively bring that money together mm-hmm. and even infuse it even into mm-hmm. our low-income and Black communities, how our communities would flourish. And so it's just like, wow, while we celebrate, let's also think about what we perpetuate when we remain ignorant to what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ramtia. <laughs> Well, I I was saying what she said right there, that right there, that right there. Uh, You know, for me, it has been important to implement truth in my life, Mm -hmm. individually and then collectively, individually and then with my family. What is the narrative that I am not only saying, but what is the narrative that I'm demonstrating? You know, wherever my treasure is going, that's where my heart is. Wherever all my time is going, that's where my heart is. Wherever all my talents are going, that's where my heart is. Follow, if you follow my treasures, you follow my heart. And so I've had to ask myself, where am I going? And I've been doing this for for the past five years now. I refuse to pay a dime right now for anything. And I'm not going to pretend that in this society right now, there's, there's, I'm not gonna pretend like there's not division. I'm not going to pretend like there's not any injustices. What I'm looking at is where's my money actually going? Mm-hmm. When I buy this or buy that, or if I go out to eat, what, where is my money actually going? So this is for me is a time of contemplation. Think about what you're doing. Think about all of your acts from the beginning to the end. I believe that right now is not the time to turn a blind eye and to wait for somebody else to take hold and say, and make a list for you to say, okay, you should do this, you should do this and don't do that. No, it is time for us to take authority over our lives, over our health, over our mind, over our relationships, and to understand that we have responsibility to ourselves first. Yes, Trisha, we have to be accountable. Why? We ask our leaders to be accountable, but then we get absent-minded with ourselves. No more. Accountability starts with me. Mm-hmm. Val, you want to add to that? You know, I'm going to say this. Um, the truth cannot set us free until we realize what false belief is holding us hostage. Mm. Starting with Santa. you know we can go all the way back to santa right there are several forms of bondage we talk about the bondage that comes with incarceration but we are also in bondage when we are not financially free Mm -hmm. and what i don't understand with that is 
financing a dream today is putting you in financial bondage tomorrow. And so with that being said, a lot of people are celebrating and spend money that they don't even have. So we can go beyond that belief, right? If you want to buy a child something and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ or, you know, whatever it is, that's fine. But a lot of people spend money that they don't even have. For me, um, I got in trouble a lot as a kid. So I just didn't start standing up and saying stuff. And I, I told my mom um, she was a liar and she slapped me. It probably wasn't the best terminology to say, but you told me it was a tooth fairy. You told me it was an Easter bunny. You told me it was a Santa Claus and none of those things are real. Yes. So I think we need to start there with, there is a point in time where our moral morals, values, and beliefs are who we become as adults. But then you have to stop and look and say, okay, I didn't have a choice but to do some of these things as a child growing up. But now that I have a choice, because I didn't have a choice in who I have become from birth to 18 in my mama's house, I really didn't have a choice. But once I got outside of the confines of her home, I do have a choice. And I don't have to continue to do things because they're rituals or to do things as I see fit according to my mother's vision of life or that particular upbringing. And my first separation started um, with religion. And, you know, I moved on from there. So I, I just say, look, the truth cannot set you free until you understand what false belief is holding you hostage. And I will yield the floor. All right. Adul. It's very enlightening what I'm hearing and I, I, I can't agree more. Um, the things that are holding us hostage, you know, I, I, someone mentioned something about the Santa Claus. <laughs> When you look at the historical context of how it was thrown at us, everything that they sanctified as pure was, was thrown at us and we were misled to believe that anything different is not the truth. And it has morphed into this age where it's still pounded on us. Mm -hmm. And like uh, Valerie said, unlike what we were taught to believe as children, we have a decision to make now. We make these conscious decisions, whether we want to still live those lies or we want to self-revolutionize ourselves and say, you know what? I'm interested in knowing what the truth is and that's what I want to live. I want to live the truth. So. I think we talked about this a couple of uh, seminars ago, and I, someone struck this up just a moment, a few minutes ago. What I see is a lot of self-induced harm, too, in our community. We have to take responsibility 
accountability. We know the harms that they're putting in front of us, right? And we have to take accountability, self-invest, self-empowerment requires investing in ourselves and stop being big spenders and be big savers and invest in our own future and in our generation. It takes a village to raise a child, but we've got to be leaders. Mm -hmm. And we know what we got to do. It's a matter of getting there and doing it. I um, brought up something that a long time ago I was taught. I came up through the right, through the, I don't call it riots, the riots. I call it the rebellions in Detroit. And we don't have that fighting spirit anymore. We're com we have become complacent. We, we still have that revolutionary spirit. It comes to the surface, but then we fold up our tent and we get complacent again, right? We don't boycott. In the spirit of Mother Rosa Parks, fighting spirit, what they did, they made, they were, they sacrificed so that they fought for change. Mm -hmm. we, what we're doing, what I see now, we react when something bad happens, and that should tell us that because we are, we have, we're becoming, we become complacent, and we are depending on them to make the change for us, right? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm I love I'm proud to say I'm I'm old school. I believe in hitting the pavement and revolutionizing peacefully when necessary, but hit them in their pocketbooks. Stop giving your oppressor mm -hmm. your money. Stop giving your enemy your money. They have the financial power over you. Stop doing it. And boycott. Not just for a day or two. Not, we go out here, we hold these massive protests, which are which are wonderful. But what do we get out of them? Where, where is the change? There, we see some but police brutality is not going to go away overnight, right? No matter mm -hmm. how, how many millions turn out. So I think the, the where the solution lies that it's it's in ourselves and taking hold of our own future. I don't I don't know what I don't know how best to say it, but. I think it's economics, social economics, in in taking charge of our own future, and we and look, we know we're big spenders, and we've got to change that. We've got to change that because in this country, what America is, is a capitalist society. The root word of capitalist is capital, money. It drives the society per, in a, in a what we call in Islam in a haram way. It's meaning it's, it's so bad. It's we got to break from that mentality that money is what defines me and what defines us. It's good, we need it. Yes, it doesn't buy everything, and it should not buy our souls. Yes, thank you. Yes. I have so much what I want to say, but I'm gonna go to attorney Hugo Matt. <laughs> well, I'm a little bit different than the rest of y'all. I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in Santa Claus, but I do think Santa has got a tint of racism in him. And I'll tell you why. I heard the hardest working man in show business, Mr. Please, please, please. Mr. Papa got a brand new bag. Mr. Try me, Mr. Sex Machine, the late great James Brown, who once said, Santa Claus, go straight to the ghetto. Yes. And unfortunately, I don't think there's that many white men walking around the ghetto 12 midnight with a big $500 suit on with a bunch of presents trying to break in black people's houses. So for me, 
<laughs> For me, I got an issue with Santa, and, and I'm trying to catch him and address him on that because he got to slow his roll. Because if he want me to keep believing him, I got to see some of them black presents flowing in. That's all I got to say. Yes. So first, before I say something, I want to acknowledge that Pastor Mike, who is supposed to be on with us, is is in the um, <laughs> he's watching us. Um, we're gonna get you on, Pastor Mike. Um, first of all, I want to start with I don't want to contribute to my own demise. First of all. Uh, we talk about, we have talked about injustice this whole entire year on turning the moment into a movement. And then when these holidays come, we just throw injustice on out of our mind and go right back into the program of what was going on before. And I have to agree with um, Mr. Abdul. We can't just continue to pick and choose our fights. We have to be proactive. We're reacting all the time. And so when we, no one takes us seriously because we're reacting. We have to figure out how to be proactive. And we're talking about a, a year, almost two years in COVID injustice. We're talking about health injustice, poverty, educational, not even the re not to also add the reason why we're here is for wrongful convictions. We have all these things, but we're making people rich. We're giving our power away to all these corporations and that pay these lawmakers and everything to do stuff that's criminalize us. We're paying for our own demise. So we have to figure out where do we draw the line? <laughs> so um, if we're saying we're awakened, we have to be awakened on all fronts. We just can't pick and choose. You know, we're, we're um, protesting this week and then we're shopping in December. Our heads are spending all this money for what? For what? To be in debt January, February, March? And the cycle continues all over again. We had to realize, you know, it's this is just a hard pill to swallow. If I say I'm in truth, I'm in truth. Mm -hmm. I'm in truth. So we have to take accountability because the justice we seek is seeking us. <laughs> it's seeking us. It's asking us. What are you doing? What are your, you know, what is it that you stand for? You know, so if I'm standing for, you know, to speak out for others, I'm not going out here acting a fool, you know, contributing to uh, making record profits for somebody else. And then there's families who not eating. They might eat on Christmas because somebody gave them a turkey. But what about the weeks after Christmas? And the weeks after that, you know, spring, summer, who's giving them something then? Okay, who wants to jump in? Rabbitia. Oh, my goodness. You know what? I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that Valerie brought up the, the Santa Claus thing because I was one 
I did not tell my children that. I told them the truth. And then I took them out. We would do Meals on Wheels on Christmas so they could see everybody doesn't have a family. Everybody's not getting fed. And um, and that's where you start. Um, and I, I'm, I'm constantly hearing, like right now, during a pandemic, we're being re-traumatized. And I heard Abdul say, it's self-induced. And, and, and it is. When you think about it, why is it self-induced? Why are we re-traumatizing ourselves because of a habitual way of acting and doing that has been taught to us, although erroneous as it is? In the midst of a pandemic, at a, in the midst where suicide, nobody's talking about it, has been its highest ever. No one's talking about it. Just going on. People have been hurting. Nobody's really talking about it. Oh, you can go get help. That's what they say. Or oh, we'll do tele, you know, telehealth with you. You know, all of these things are out here. And then yet, we're just going on and trying to get back to, we're going to get back to the new, the new normal, you know, which is the cliche now. Right. Let's just be honest. If we really wanted to reflect however this thing started, however this new norm started, mm-hmm. how about those who act like they don't feel anything? How about we not participate? How about we just spend time with our families loving on each other and not pay a dime? Right. Do you know if we went from, if we had started um what they term as Black Friday, which I don't like that term, but if we would have started the day after what they call Thanksgiving, um, <laughs> if, if we would have started then up until all the way past to the new year and held on and saved money and did traditional meals that we wanted healthy meals. If we started talking about how we're going to collaborate with one another, how are we going to give back to our community? How are we going to pull people together? How are we going to raise the vibration in our community? If we spent time doing that, instead of spending money, they would hear us. Exactly. They don't hear you. You, you. you going back to the regular old programming. Oh, I got to go shop. Oh, I got to go do this. Because it's Christmas? Mm-hmm. No, I can shop at any time. But wait, there's a pandemic. They want you, everybody to go get inoculated again so you can go shop. <laughs> Stand in line amongst each other. Come on Supposedly. Now. <laughs> Supposedly. <laughs> That that collective that we need, though, there are a few folks standing in the way of that. Mm. And one of those folks, sets of folks, look like us. Mm-hmm. Privileged folks that just don't really see the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Value in some of these collective efforts because actually what it's doing is it's rocking their boat, right? It's almost like, don't come over here with that. 
we straight, you know, <laughs> but they straight because they got boats and houses and cars and got everything they need. And they're willing, though, because they've secured their own power, they're willing to accept scraps on our behalf. And so that's why we sit not having some of the things that we need and we got black mayors and we got black commissioners and we got, let me tell you something. I don't care nothing about the color of your skin. If you ain't doing right, you gotta go. Mm -hmm. Valerie used to say it all the time. I used to be cracking. People used to be dying laughing. We was all protesting and talking about uh, Ellie. <laughs> she used to be like, um, he white, but he all right. You know? <laughs> 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 but wait, then you gonna be like, but I'm all right too. Yeah, you go. You all right too, bro. But oh my gosh, I'm telling you, it ain't about the color of your skin. It's about the realization of what needs to be done. Right. And if we don't, I'm, I'm going to stop saying if we don't come together because some of us just ain't coming. We're not going to do it. Some no. of us just ain't coming. So enough of us who will, we're going to have to figure out a way. But it, I, it's always it's the one lesson. It's the one lesson that I have learned to date is that it's going to always be somebody. To be like, well, I ain't doing that because I don't want to do it. And I ain't doing And I got to go get some gas. It's like. Right. There's always that one person who got to. I got to get those Jordans. <laughs> yeah, I got to get some Jordans. That's, you know. But you know what? Yeah. what? What's interesting to me is, you know, some people are really in need this time of year, year yeah. round. But it seems like as a society, as a whole, we pick holidays where we want to feed the hungry the most. Like Thanksgiving, come get this turkey and this meal. And you see gleaners asking for all of this money and stuff like that. And... I have participated in some of those food giveaways and I walked away saying our priorities are messed up because the hand that I see some of these young ladies use to pick up that bag of free food got about a hundred dollar nail job on it. All the rhinestones and the little baby got on the Jordans. And it's probably about, you know, $800 of Belinda's bundles in their hair, you know? So like you say, we have money, but we need to talk about financial literacy, even to our children at a very at a early age. That materialism is something that we have used to mask ourselves. See, we've been wearing a lot of masks long before the pandemic. And so we are put on our finest and it'd be shallow as hell on the inside, hurting, empty. But to put those things on, make us feel good, you know, and I'm not going to um, say anything but the truth. Mm -hmm. That was what my mother did with me. If I had an issue or something going on, it's like, okay, well, I could get the latest and greatest whatever. And as a kid, sure, that made me feel happy for that moment, but no healing took place. And I feel like, you know, a parent's job really is to raise a child in a manner as such where they won't need therapy when they get grounded. 
retail therapy is what we use to mask some of the things that we even encountered in our childhood. Mm -hmm. It's just like shop, shop, shop. I'm going to look good. This makes me feel good. But none of the healing really takes place. And so when I look at even within my own circle, my own family unit at what I'm going to call the misappropriation of funds, I can't blame these young adults. I would have to blame their parents to a certain mm -hmm. extent, right? We don't teach financial literacy. I will say everyone, I did not learn. I'm just learning how to handle money appropriately because my ass getting old and I don't want to be broke. You know, so I'm starting to look at it in a real serious way. But nobody talked to me about money. Nobody talked to me about investing. Nobody talked to me about power. When I thought I had a little bit of a voice, it was shut down because it's like, hey, stay in a kid place. Don't say how you feel around here. Go in your room, you know, or whatever. So we are not grooming a generation of financially empowered youth. We are not grooming the next Detroit Red Malcolm X. We are not grooming the next Martin Luther King. And we have to start doing that. But one thing I will say about that process, I would not say there are not any, but when I say then, once we do that, we got to get out the way. Mm -hmm. Because I've talked to a lot of my elders who always want to talk about how things used to be. There is a place for that history and those stories that you like to <laughs> But at some point, we have to move on beyond that because only a portion of what was taught historically worked. That's why we still have so much work to do. So mm -hmm. let's just take what was effective. But see, we won't be effective in coming together because we can't come together. We're divided as people, right? We're divided. Everybody wants to be the leader. Everybody wasn't the leader in the Martin Luther King movement. He was put out front. It was some people still in the basement of the Ebenezer Baptist Church doing whatever. Somebody was probably in charge of the food. Somebody was in charge of the marching order. Somebody was in charge of security or whatever. And they just all agreed, we're going to put this brother out here. He's the leader. Mm -hmm. We can't have that. It does not work for us. I've labored and labored at different venues at different tables at different boardroom tables or whatever and we just cannot seem to get it together when it comes to working together mm -hmm. there is always a snake among us right and when you look at the demise when i'm talking about history and us coming together when you look at the demise of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and I could probably go on it was somebody on the inside mm -hmm. that looked like them right and we still have that going on yes so you're gonna have to just get a small group of people who feel and I don't care what color they are it could be a green leprechaun that is fine with me but we all need to have the same idea so because see 
we could all be on the same page, but your morals and your values is what drive your action. So I think we need to be a little bit um, deeper in those conversations when we're vetting or when we're talking about collaboration or whatever it is. I'm going to get behind the fact that we all need to be free. Yeah, I agree on that. But now what else you got going on? You know, let's just make sure this is a good fit so we can be a cohesive group and move forward to gain whatever it is that we need to get. Right. And we are not, we, we fail at that. I give us an F. We fail. Right. Because we stay distracted. You know, these holidays and all these things are illusions and they come to a, distract you. And so when we're distracted, we can't even... We don't, we're in this cycle and we don't even know what we're doing. And so, and I know uh, Attorney Hugo Mack and Mr. Um, Adul can attest to this when it comes to just to the justice system, you know, we might have on three or $400 shoes and, you know, $2,000 eye uh, sunglasses, but we don't have, uh, $50 on, uh, on an attorney or anything if you need that to fight for justice. The system is set up to keep you distracted so you can't, when you get in these situations, you can't fight for yourself because your mind is gone <laughs> on the um, outside, the material. But you're right. We have to get back and focus. We have to organize. We have... And we need to, you know, when I say organize, even within our home and amongst our family members, we have to organize and have these conversations with them because the system going to take all of us in order to change it. But first, I guess you need to figure out that is something to need that we must change because some of us so blind, we okay with how it is until it happened to you. And then everybody's phones on the screen is ringing. So um, go ahead, Mr. Abdul. Uh, you know, going back to something you said and about COVID injustice, what, what a fitting term from what I witnessed in the past year and a half living here in Northwest Detroit. And what I'm still seeing, I was on the bus the other day and um, there's this obsession now with the mask wearing such that it has put a fear in people where they almost came to blows and it's come to that. And sadly, it has impacted the African-American community more than anyone else around me, at least. I work in Oakland County and I live in Wayne County. I live in Detroit and it is two different worlds. And why, I asked myself the other day and I got my own answer, I said, it's because there's a paranoia. There is COVID injustice. The, the racial inequity with respect to the healthcare distribution mm -hmm. has impacted the African-American community more than anyone else. When you look at the numbers in Oakland County compared to Wayne County, you see the racial disparity. They, they are killing the community with a bullet called SARS-CoV-2. And it has gotten to the point, and I've seen it enough. I take, I, I'm out, I, like I said, I take public transportation. I see people almost coming to blows now because they're afraid of what? Of dying from this, right? But subconsciously they know we don't have affordable health care. 
and the history behind the vaccination. I get it, I understand it, but I, I also know there's a direct correlation between vaccinations and the survival survivability. I'm no epidemiologist. What I also saw I right here at Sinai Grace Hospital. There were refrigerated trucks lined up outside the hospital that will haunt me for a long time. These were my neighbors. These were African American people that I live among. There were they're like here in the Six Mile Greenfield area of Detroit. There's like three or four nursing homes. People were literally dying in front of in front of, in front of me, and I'm. I couldn't help but recognize the racial disparity behind it. And it is it was a shame. What control we have over it. But I it, it's an indictment of dysfunction at the government and the healthcare levels in this country. What we gotta do, I think Reverend Tia said it, maybe this is a, a wake up to take care of our own health better than what we're doing. Yeah. You believe in vaccinations or not is not the issue. That's your choice. I get it. But we we do have some control even over that. But I hope it is not what I what I what I'm seeing now with the paranoia and the fear of COVID is that are we really getting ready to come to blows amongst each other for this? No, that's not the way. And we do need to be more health conscientious as well as fiscally responsible, right? I, I live uh, near Chaldean store in Detroit and I will tell you, I don't shop there. I will go to Birmingham, Trader Joe's. Not a, a lot of people, I get it, they can't afford it. I get it and they have a captive audience. But when you, when you live those two worlds of the haves and have nots and you see the, race, the racial disparity, you can't help but acknowledge that. Yes, you're right. We are, a lot of people in, in my community, they are in a hole. Some of it is self-induced and a lot of it is not. But in, in addition to what we've been talking about, financial responsibility, fiscal responsibility, and stop the self-induced harm, like Reverend Tia mentioned, being more health conscientious, I think will go a long way. I think it will go a long way. Right. When you're talking about 14, 13% of the total U.S. population and the most people are dying, they're, they're not even having this conversation. You know, I was trying to have it on Sam's show on Friday. I'm like, hey, you have to look where black people live. They're living in a food desert. Mm -hmm. They're living where the air is toxic. Mm -hmm. Only in a black community you have a, a marathon um um petroleum company with all those smoke stacks poisoning a whole community but they don't have these conversations the conversation is get the jab you know what i'm saying but what about the conversation about healthy immune systems and responsibility and accountability not only of ourselves but also of these companies that pump poison in the air all day long and in the water. Go to out in Franklin, Michigan. Yeah. You don't see these companies in the suburbs, Attorney Hugo Matt. Correct. And you see, the the problem we have is so complex. 
because let's talk about, for example, like McDonald's, okay? Now, McDonald's will help sponsor somebody like Tom Joyner, all right, or say that they're a contributor to uh, to BET or Walmart, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm sure all of you have seen the Walmart commercials where they talk about helping their associates. You notice everybody who works is an associate. You know what I'm saying? You know, is an associate. You know, uh, a fancy name for a laborer, uh, mm-hmm. a, a person who stacks tomato cans. Okay fancy name for that okay so mm. but anyway everybody everybody's an associate now almost like they, they've got a college degree now and and they've got an office you know upstairs at walmart well th- <laughs> the problem is walmart and, Mc, and mcdonald's are the main corporations you know they don't want unionization they don't want a working wage you understand what i'm saying mm-hmm. they don't want any of that they want to be able to hire and fire they support the legislation that made Michigan a right not to work state, okay? So what I'm saying is, but they will put a black face on, like I said, a Tom Joyner or a a Steve Harvey or a BET and say we're a proud sponsor. So that that placates black people. I mean, you know, and for example, I see a woman, uh, Regina King, uh, making Cadillac commercials, okay? Cadillac commercials. Well, Ford Motor Company, they've never been a friend to black people. That's why they had uh, uh, a Romulus, you know, and, and those other suburbs away from from Dearborn. You understand? Uh, excuse me, Inkster. I'm sorry, Inkster. Uh, away from away from where the white folks are with Dearborn. So a lot of people don't understand the whole history of how the city of Inkster even came to being in the first before, place. Okay. Or put that city together. The bus. Correct. <laughs> that, that, you see what I'm saying? And so what I'm saying is that the problem is. I heard Malcolm talk about Novocaine, all right? And he said how you go to the doctor and they inject you with, with Novocaine. And the Novocaine, the doctor is not telling you don't suffer. He said suffer in silence so you don't, you don't feel it. You're still suffering because when that Novocaine wakes off, guess what? Your mouth is hurting you quite a bit, okay? Mm-hmm. So, and, and the thing of it is that I agree with what everybody is saying, but we have been placated and, and we fall for it. We see a black face at McDonald's. We see a black face at Walmart. We see a black face driving a Cadillac. And somehow we think that's us. But it's not us. That's not us. Really, to tell you the truth, that's not even them. Okay? They're, they're, they're being paid to be a figurehead of it. Kind of like kind of like a Judas goat. You know what I'm saying? A Judas goat that leads the other goat to, into slaughter. Okay? So um, that's the problem. You know, I heard a, a, a group named Pink Floyd one time made a song called Comfortably Numb, all right? And, 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 and the problem that we've had in this nation, we as black people have become comfortably numb, is what it is, comfortably numb, you know? And uh, that's a hell of a mojo to work out of, but, you know, if people like us can make a difference, we, we, right. we can make a difference right. and we can't stop. Right. Yeah, like we just had a black gospel artist who was supporting, um, he was promoting uh, uh, some kind of hip hop contest or whatever it was, some kind of music Mm -hmm. contest. But the company that was um, putting this contest out was a company that has prison phones. And so many people was trying to say, hey, you know, you're contributing to a company that is contributing to the demise of your people. But you know, right. his 
for whoever they didn't see it that way they thought they was giving artists a chance but then when you research some of this stuff some of these same record labels and different companies are uh, investors or ceos in private prisons so we have mm -hmm. to we have to be more intentional we have to wake up just because they put a black face on it don't mean for us right that's you know, they didn't just start putting blackface on stuff. Remember blackface like a long oh, yeah. time ago, the blackface? You know, mm -hmm. so a lot of stuff we're talking about. Yeah. It's just repeating itself. Yeah. Over and over and over. I'm tickled. Stephanie says she need her W-2 and her own grocery. Right. I agree. That I don't work there and I don't want to scan my own stuff either. And but, bag, you know. You know, I just feel like I understand the boycotting. I understand spending too much money in, with these institutions and stuff. But for me, you know, I can say I never participated in a, a gas station boycott. For what? Where, where else I'm going to go? You know, now that I'm in the city of Detroit and I live down here, there are a couple of Black-owned gas stations, I assume. I don't know if they're Blackface or they're really black owned. But I'm saying, we say boycott this and go, don't go here and go, don't go there. That's only gonna work for a minute, then where the hell I'm going? Right. I don't have nowhere else to go, no black grocery store, no black, that's on the level of a Walmart, that's on the level of a um, JCPenney, that's on the level of a Sears or anything like that, where I am going to go and maintain the lifestyle that I have been accustomed to even on, at bare minimum. Mm -hmm. So I'm only going to be able to hold out for so long. And that's why I feel that desegregation was by design because it just broke us all up. When we were together and segregated, if I was born back then, well, I was born back then. If I was an adult back then, I would want my freedom, but I'm not saying I want to do everything that y'all do. You know, you don't have to desegregate me. Just give me my freedom and give me the opportunity that everybody else has. Right. And I feel that desegregation, that's what hurt us in the form of our mindsets to come collectively together and have everything that we need. That Black Wall Street concept in my mind went away with desegregation. We started spreading out. So we no longer had to work together. We no longer had to do all of these things together. Because people was able to move out of the, the hood or out of the neighborhood that they grew up. And it broke that family and that um, because you can be out. You felt like you made it. I'm out here now. I made it. I don't have to live, you know on grandma street no more or whoever street, you know, I I'm out here. But meanwhile, wh while we're separated and while we're doing all the separated and not only physically, but mentally and spiritually, all these other things in the background are really tearing us more and more apart. So, you know, it's even in religion, it's in all these different areas of our lives in our um in our workplace our careers uh all all these places so <laughs> yeah you know i was i was gonna say jay that um 
the thing about it is that we've gone all these years now. We have, I believe, today, communities are coming together based upon, I think what Val has said earlier, and that's on values, ethics, and values. Mm -hmm. And so the community is going to look different now. Right. Because we've blended. Many people have blended in. And so the community is about humanity. And it's about, you know, be, because we got to realize that sometimes the narratives are old narratives that they keep putting before us so that we can pick a side. Mm -hmm. And it's always one side against this side. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe that we are far above the sides now. Those who are really called to collective action know that right now, this is the time for humanity to come together according to principle, according to values. And that crosses all religion. It crosses all cultures because there are people who agree in freedom and agree also that we should be loving one another or at least have care for humanity, care for our nature, care for the earth. And so what I'm saying is I believe that, yeah, we can't. <laughs> Back when I was little, the, the gas station on Oakland Boulevard and Livernois was black owned. And we knew the the owners. You go down, you get your candy, you get your your drink or whatever, and you you come back. The community hospitals were there. There are no more community hospitals right now in America. We have what we call uh, monopolized everything. We monopolize healthcare is is a monopoly. Everything has become. A monopoly, and we right up under our nose. We didn't see it. Right, we didn't see it happening. Yeah, and so it's all it's all these different monopolies where where key people are getting most of the money from exactly. this. You know, and so we just need to wake up and say, "Look, I'm gonna do something different. I may relocate. I might join in with my community. I may start a you know have a garden or at least make sure I patronize." A community garden, mm -hmm. but my actions need to, like I said earlier, line up. Right. And at the same time, I'm recognizing my brother and sister cross humanity. Exactly. So I want to, um, you guys, this has been really good, but I, I, I need to shift the conversation a little bit. I want to talk about 110 years sentence. Um, Attorney Hugo Matt, have you followed that um, that young man uh, in Colorado and his hundred and ten year sentence? To be to be candid, I'm a little bit faded on that. I I I I, I can't say I really followed that. To be honest with you, what about you, um, Mr. Abdul? Uh, other than just skimming across some headlines, I don't know what was he. I don't know if he was he sentenced as a habitual offender. Or what was his? What was he sentenced for? Was it? It was nonviolent crime, right? Like marijuana. He was, it, he was not ever. He wasn't habitual. <laughs> he 
he had a um he had a car accident in the semi. The brakes went out. Mm. And uh it was our, I guess a pile up on the freeway and he was trying to avoid having a a, a bigger collision. And um he hit like four people. Was it four people? And um, four people died. Yeah, four people died. This is, I think, a 28-car pileup. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was avoiding that. And so he went a different way, and the brace gave out. So what I've been gathering from this, you know, he wasn't properly, he might have been um, too new or inexperienced driver to be able to handle um, that type of accident. However, he um, he ended up getting a sentence 110 years based off the charges that the prosecutor put together. And even the judge didn't really want to get him those 110 years. But how they stacked the deck, he ended up getting 110 years. And so my thing is, Back in the deck, <laughs> uh, giving piling up all these charges on people. Why is there like no universal? You know, I know states have rights to do certain things certain ways, but I just feel like there should be some kind of universal laws across the book where people don't end up in these situations that was an accident or something like that and end up getting a hundred, he's 26 years old and they gave him 110 years for an accident. Well, states have their, obviously they have their own criminal codes and sentencing schemes. And I would imagine because based on the number of lives lost, but there, there doesn't appear to have been any intent to kill the people. I mean, it was, sounds like it was negligent at most in Michigan, in Michigan, I think he would have at most got what is called a vehicular homicide, which is not even a life sentence. Right. And I don't, I, without knowing Michigan's sentencing scheme, whether, whether for each victim he would have gotten consecutive sentences for those four deaths, I don't, I, I, well, under, in Mich under Michigan's indeterminate sentencing stat, sentencing laws, you can't give somebody 110 years anyway. I think uh, the Milborn case in the 90s, the Michigan Supreme Court said, we have to give a defendant an indeterminate sentence that he or she can reasonably serve. For example, like Judge Talbot used to be notorious for giving somebody 100 to 300 years. And the, the courts in Michigan said, you can't do that. Nobody can expect to live 300 years, okay? Right. But in that case in Colorado, based on the facts that you shared with me, it seems like at most he was guilty of negligent homicide. I, I, I understand and I appreciate that there was a significant number of lives lost, but it doesn't sound like he intended to kill those people. And it's unfortunate the circumstances turned out the way they did, but 110 years for, how old is he, 20? 23. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was Cuban. Cuban immigrant, oh, okay. Texas resident, mm -hmm. and it's his first offense. Um, it's so, it, it, but states have their own law, their own criminal codes and sentencing schemes, and I don't know what Colorado says about that, but it seems it it is excessive. It is excessive based on those circumstances. Yeah. It's it's different now. Like in Michigan, you can be charged with murder if you 
commit a, say for instance, you commit an underlying felony, you rob a gas station. And they and Mr. Mack, you probably would remember this case. It was about 10 years ago. You used to, if you get in your car and you're fleeing the police uh -huh. and you hit and kill someone, you didn't intend to kill that person. Your, your intent was to what? Flee the police and get away from the crime. But that person in the other car dies, you will be charged with felony murder now in Michigan. That's a life sentence. So happened today or yesterday. Yeah, and it used to not be that way under the Aaron decision in the 1980s, where Michigan abrogated what was called the common law felony murder rule. What the court said was, you, you know, before 1980, if you committed an underlying felony and someone died, the intent to kill was imputed from the underlying felony. So that was a harsh rule, right? Because you got life in prison, even if you didn't intend, that the, say if you pull a gun on the, on the clerk and the clerk drops dead of a heart attack. You, you used to get life for that in Michigan, but now, arguably, you won't. You'll, you'll be charged with armed robbery. If, but, the, of course, the prosecutor is going to try to charge you with murder because they say you take your victim as you find him. But anyway, Michigan abrogated that. But this vehicle case I'm telling you about, they changed that recently, and they allow prosecutors to charge you for murder if you are driving your car and you're trying to flee the police and you kill someone. You didn't intend to kill them. I know you, you, you very likely, you, you intended to get away, but if you recklessly drive that car in, a, in the course of a felony trying to get away from the police, you'll be charged with murder. So Pastor Mike wrote in the chat, meanwhile, a white kid, 16-year-old boy, was drunk and killed three people, and he was sentenced. He received 90 de um, days in jail. I wonder what state that was in. I don't know what state that was in. But there is a disparity, and you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter what state they're in. When you compare these disparities in these cases, the, the, the white kid killed three people and in the same set, set, set of circumstances. He only gets 90 days. I don't care what state line you cross. It's an absurd result. And right. this guy gets 110 years in Colorado. Right. I remember there was another uh, case where a young white girl was on the cell phone. This happened a few years back. And she ran over, um, a, she killed the baby and the grandmother. And the judge didn't give her that much time because he said that she, um, he felt like that she was remorseful and that, I, I don't even think she even really served any jail time. She was remorseful and he didn't want to mess up her life. And so he didn't give her no jail time. But this lady lost her child and her mother because she was texting the driver. That's why universal laws will never work, in my opinion. Because from state to state, even if it's the same law, how they execute it in the life of the black and brown folks and white folks is two different things. Mm -hmm. So if they make a universal law, then you're just going to see a whole bunch of white folks that won't get charged for crimes mm -hmm. that they, they complete. Right, and they'll be charging black and brown folks up. I, it, it's, I mean, it's, they're doing it now without it. They're doing it now without it. It's, I, you know, I have my shirt down for a reason. It's oh, <laughs> because this is all I gotta say about that. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. that's all I gotta say about that. That man is not a murderer. He's not a criminal. If you're gonna, if you're gonna send him to prison. Then you need to split that time up with the CEO of the company, right. the supervisor, the supervisor, supervisor. You need to pass them 110 years out to those people because when you are doing your checks for the breaks, 
in a car and I know I just went through a CDL certification with somebody. When you checking them brakes, you're not under there doing a brake inspection like they would do when you go take it in to be serviced. You pumping that brake, you doing the little minor things that you can do to do your pre-inspection trip. Right. If in fact he wouldn't have known if those brakes were going to go out just by doing a pre-inspection trip, that would have been for the company to make right. sure that those brakes were serviced every time they're supposed to be serviced. So right. for me, how in the world, I mean, this is to me, it's a wrongful conviction or a right. wrongful charge because how in the world can the brakes go out? I mean, that's just like me. So the brakes go out on my little egg out there, my little justice. Brakes go out on justice, right? And I run into somebody. Is it my fault? Because my brakes went out? I think you, they would have to show that you you had knowledge, right? Right. They would have to show you. Here, I'm saying in Michigan, I think that's not enough. I think the prosecution would have to show that you had knowledge and you took that car on the road without fixing it. They could charge you what this, I think is involuntary manslaughter. You know what's interesting in Oakland County with that sh shooting of the kid in Oxford? It's one of the first cases where the prosecutor charged the two parents. She's charging them with involuntary manslaughter. And involuntary manslaughter here, at least, is defined where you have a legal duty, at least, to take mm -hmm. an action. You didn't do it and someone died as a result. So the break, you know, the break example you're giving, I think they would have to show knowledge. And that's what they're trying to show with the parents in Oakland County, that they had knowledge, right, based on all these texts they were sending their son and... Um, and, and that's why they're charging the parents with involuntary manslaughter while the son is being charged, rightfully so, with first-degree murder. Right. And I mean, what are you doing buying your son a gun for Christmas at 15 years old? But that's a different story. But the perverse of all that is, I don't like, well, you know, a lot, a lot of students die, but it, enough, of the, you know, enough of the coverage about that. It's always in our face because it, it's, the shock level is just like to, out there. It's just so horrible. You know, it's just, but okay, well, you know. So the trauma, the trauma, the trauma keeps re-engaging that trauma. Yes. And then you have the copycats and and other people who are dealing with trauma. Yeah. These kids are afraid. And so they're doing stuff. And meanwhile, they're being criminalized with um, um, felony charges. I, and I think that's overreacting the prosecutor's I understand they have a job to do. If a kid makes a threat with a gun, that's one thing. But I think now they're charging any and all students with terrorism if they're threatening to have fistfights. Now, that's what that's my that, you and I had fistfights in school when we were we were suspended. I think there's they're again, they're reacting, right? So because of what happened in Oxford. And but again, if a kid is threatening to do harm with a weapon of mass destruction, yeah. You, you you should charge them and you or or get them out of the school, but what I hear is going on is the prosecutor is overcharging these kids for what is nothing more than threats to have a fist fight. That's got to stop because you're going to ruin their lives now. And how what type of discipline is that? That's going to traumatize them, right? You're going to put them through the criminal justice system and put their parents through a public embarrassment when they didn't have a weapon, they didn't threaten to use a weapon, all they threatened to do was have fist fights. Come on now, get a grip. Yeah, I agree. I, I just think they, they've gone, they've gone too far and they want an easy answer. They want an easy answer, people don't want to do their job. Yeah. I mean, they knew according to that child's behavior 
that something was going to happen. Was and like you said, there was they weren't being proactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think CPS should have been called long time ago to that home mm-hmm. with my social worker's cap on. Right. Well, listen. you know, but that that should have happened a long time ago. All of the that could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. You know, so there were so many other key things. I think the problem we have in some of the systems is they're waiting for somebody else to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, that, you, know, you know, he's not the only one in school with that profile. I agree with you 100%. But here's the other thing. The solution is dumb as hell. Oh, well, we're waiting to get our order of clear backpacks in. And then, you know, we will resume school gradually as normal. Hold up. We have metal detectors in DPS schools. Exactly. For you. We never had a shooting. Not a a terroristic school shooting has not occurred during the civil rights movement. Little Rock Nine walked to school, got spit on, fire hoses opened up on them, and everything. They didn't come back and shoot up the school. Yes. What do you mean? You're waiting on your supply of clear backpacks. That is so reprehensible. No, you need metal detectors. Just like you have everywhere else. And another thing that disturbed me, when did a Dana Nessel's office need permission to do anything? Excuse me, ma'am. Right. You don't need permission to do an independent investigation. Thank you. What the hell did you ask that question right. for? What oh, did she well, ask? We're going to do an independent investigation. Well, you know, Dana Nessel's office reached out and, you know, Oxford, they declined. So, okay, we're fine. No. no, they, they declined. Oxford declined. Yeah, now Dana Nessel's office, the state of Michigan AG's office, to do an independent investigation. Oxford was like, "No, thank you," and she was like, "Okay." Right. They said we're gonna we're gonna bring our own people in and do the independent. They don't they want to bring their own people in. Let's be mm-hmm. clear, because of the negligence of the principal of mm-hmm. uh, uh the teachers who knew the principal, the social worker. I mean, this young man started making threats around November the 18th. Yep, they all of those people you named failed that young man. But this is why we have this whole conversation around wrongful convictions and things of that nature. There's no integrity with the police, police and the police. That's why I say the question should not have even been raised. Can we come in and do the independent investigation? No, we coming. Exactly. You're not going (laughs) to hire your own people to do the investigation on your negligence regarding how you handled this whole situation within your school district. Come on. Right. So the FBI. So I just want to be make sure I'm clear on this. So Dana Ness will come knock on my door with a warrant. I could say, oh, no, excuse me. I don't accept that because I'm I need my own independent <laughs> prosecutor to investigate. Attorney Mike is cracking up. 
Look, 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 look here. Tattoo my number on your forearm. <laughs> Why you playing? I know I need to have you on retainer anyway. You know what struck me? The political niceties of it. The yes. attorney general asking to go into Oxford. But when they wanted to remove Kwame Kilpatrick, the governor came in here and did it. Mm -hmm. If this was a Detroit school, I think they would have wrested the control of it. I, right. might be, I hope I'm wrong. They would have had the National Guard there. What do you mean? Oh, yeah. 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 And, and, and look, hey, uh, J-Love, can I say two words that Go nobody ahead. has talked about but is the elephant in the room that nobody want to mention? Go ahead, Tony Matt. Qualified immunity. Yes. Absolutely. And can I also Those? say, hold on, Tony Mac. I want to say this one thing. I'm going to let you go. A couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago in the Detroit Public School, there was a big food fight that led to a fight. And all those kids was arrested. All those kids was arrested mm -hmm. by the Detroit police, came to a school. Okay, go to it. Go ahead, Tony Mac. I just had to say that. Well, well, no, I'm I'm glad you did. What what's happening is I guarantee you those principals, any kind of a of a civil suit or something like that, uh, them teachers, them social workers, all those people who had access to this boy when they were warned that's going that's going on, they are going to be screaming qualified immunity. Yeah. They're going to be screaming. We were acting within our legal authority to act. There is immunity. You cannot come after us. And you know what? I hate to tell you this. I hate to tell you this. I think it's going to work. I think it's going to work. What do you mean you think? Of course, of course. it's going to work. It's been working over and over. See, this is what we say this all the time, y'all. People be like, oh, the justice system is not working properly. Oh, yes, the hell it is. It's working exactly like it would and what it was designed to do because it was designed to cater to folks and to and to oppress others. And so that's exactly what, as a matter of fact, and this to me is this theme of CPS. We just got two cases. One's getting ready to blow the lid off of it because CPS got a report that the youth was being touched by the father and they like, oh, well, the mother must be coercing them. So the mother's coercing them and it's not, then boom, get another car. Mind you, totally different person, same count, uh, totally different person, same county though. Father is touching, did something to the young girl. Oh, it must be the mother. She's probably bitter and, you know, just, and so the mother told him, look, well, if that's what you think, then I don't bring him here. Take my damn son to a foster home then. Cause I'll put him in a foster home before I see him living there with his daddy. And I know what his daddy has done to my daughter. CPS has a problem, but guess what? CPS has a level of immunity yeah, they do. that they're is backing them in their position. So mm -hmm. how do you get past all of that? If there's no level of accountability, because to me in both of those cases and in case here in Oxford, if you drop the ball on something, doggone it. Yes, there are things that you can't control in your job and you shouldn't get in trouble for that. But neglect is not one of them. They should be charged like everybody else. What, yes. what do they call it? Contribute, contributory negligence or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's what they need to be charged. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't understand a couple of things. 
about uh, the news coverage of this. They always want to link something to the city of Detroit. Oxford, located 45 miles outside of the city of Detroit, had, you know, what does that have to do with anything? Right. What the hell are you bringing that up for? But they just got to link that in. You know, everything has to be with the city of Detroit. 45 miles outside of the city of Detroit is a long day. You know, you trying to link it like it's around the corner. They always got to link something to us. Don't link that to us. We have hey, not hey, done hey, that. Hey. We have our own problems in our community. I am not trying to get away from it, but shooting up the whole school is not one of it. Stop trying to always hey, link. Stuff. I had to look on the map to see where it was. Hey, hey Valerie. Hey, I got a question for you, Valerie. Okay. Why those parents come to come to the city to hide out? Can you tell me that? Why they do that? They to the because it was only forty-five miles from the east side. And on the east side, Hiding like a mug and got caught because they they made a um, a sensor or something go off and I guess a brother who had a uh, business in that building like you know what's going on so everybody's trying to see what's going on with the alarm and it's they dumbass out there hat you know shaking in the but to answer your question attorney Mac because it was forty five miles outside of the city right who's gonna look for us in Detroit. That's the first thing in their mind. I was just thinking, if they on the east side, they were already standing out. Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, oh, and no. people do watch the news. Like, I think I've seen them before. Where I've seen them at? Eight thousand dollars. Every every car looks like that. Five thousand on a call. Hey, I seen that car on such and such. <laughs> they better run me, run me my money, run me my money. They need to up some of that money in Crime Stoppers. Maybe we can solve some of these unsolved murders yeah. out here. <laughs> when Barbara Shara had his wife killed, they dumped her body on the east side of Detroit to yeah. make it look like it was a random. We know what, what they were trying to make it look like. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to show you. He, they say there's no such thing as a smart criminal. He certainly wasn't. Because you had a, your wife killed in your house for one. Right. But then you dump her body in Detroit because, oh, people would believe it was random. And then they tried to make it look like it was random. <laughs> well, you know, it's not funny. But it is funny how there's a, there's a consciousness. Yes. Yes. There's, there's a, a consciousness that's wrapped around the city of Detroit that's wrapped around people of color and that uh oh this is what happens there mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. you know and we're laughing about it it's not funny it is definitely not funny. It, it's not funny mm -hmm. but we know the consciousness we this is one of those things where we're looking at this truth right here mm -hmm. you know so what we're gonna do with it oh, oh they're amazed when i share experience as a detroit resident been a lifeline resident since 1968 they're amazed at work and I, you know, I told him, you know, I've been a victim of random robberies. Some of us are, some of us have. Mm -hmm. And they're amazed. They say, you don't carry a gun on you? I have a CPL license. I don't carry a gun. Well, sometimes I do, I don't, but I don't want to make a bad judgment, right? And I tell them, no, because guess what? This, this may come as a surprise to you, but most of my neighbors are law-abiding, decent people. And not everybody is a criminal. Right. right. That mm -hmm. part. 
And I knew this. <laughs> and, right. oh, well, you should know that just because even though you don't live south of Eight Mile, you should know better than to ask that question. Uh, Detroit is a, is a very is a more populous city. There's other factors. There's social economic ex, economic factors. It's not a racist factor that all African Americans are criminals, and I resent that. And, and mm -hmm. it's just like all all Arabs are criminals or all Hispanics are criminals. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate that I I'm fortunate that I have lived in the city and I was raised by a black man that I don't think that way. But when they ask me that, I'm really shocked. I wonder if they're, you know, I'm like, you really believe that? No, all, you, do, you, do, you, do you really believe all black people are criminals? You are, you are wallowing in the fallacy because they're not. Right. They're not. Exactly. Right. Which is why they didn't mind criminalizing our kids for years and years and years with metal detectors in the schools that they had to go through, not understanding the mental trauma that that does to yeah. you to even be going to a school where they feel like and put mm -hmm. on guard that somebody could be possibly bringing a gun here, but you got a school that really needs one and you won't put it there. Yeah. It's just, it's just these. Do they things. know, Trisha, they know it. That's why they don't want to put it in their school. Exactly. They don't mm -hmm. want to believe they have the, they have, the criminal mindset to do what happened. At we don't school. have that problem. We don't, we don't, I don't want to say this and it happens, but mm -hmm. I don't remember a mass shooting in Detroit schools. There have been shootings, one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. fights, and there's been killings, but not mass shootings. No. And that, that, this is why I think they're resistant to putting to coming to the realis realization, you got to put metal detectors in Oxford schools. Right. You know what? you got to put metal... We've lived with it and it works, but we've never had a mass shooting in Detroit schools. Knock on wood, I'm glad we haven't. Mm -hmm. But they don't want to believe that they have that animalistic behavior. Right. But that Oxford, you know, most of those people out there hunt because there's a lot of land. So they are, they have that mentality of hunting and shooting, you know, yeah. out there because that's what they do. Um, let's jump over to Kim Potter, the, um, and those fake tears. And the Academy Award goes to <laughs> like Rittenhouse. I never saw any tears. Right. I, I was going to say, do y'all see tears come? She, you know, I think she went to the Rittenhouse School of Justice, <laughs> where they have a a, 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 a a dedicated arts program that teaches you how to act when you are are on the stand. I, I was just sitting there like, I, I just got mad because I am so, again, here we are with differences. Now I go in, I cry and all of that. Then I'm looking aggressive. Right. If I get emotional, I'm aggressive. But it, it, if a white person gets emotional and starts to cry, it's, that people are filled with so much empathy and oh my God, you know? And it's just like the tears that that will allow you to walk free on a murder that you know you committed but because you can drum up some tears then you you get you get to to get off i mean it, it's just sickening how about the difference between the the pistol and the taser yeah a bright yellow how did you think you had a taser when you when i i seem to recall from looking at that video she had she had time to realize she did not have a taser. She said, she, taser, taser, taser. She, taser. Taser. she That's just, at least six seconds right there. Right. And it's a bright, a taser is bright yellow. 
How about she was a trainer and also the union president of the police union? And also she has um, coached many other officers through the same kind of proceedings of wrongdoing. That was her job. So she knows exactly what she's doing. She knows to get up on that stand and cry and whatever because she done trained her own officers to do stuff and how to tell lies and how to, you know, be to get out of trouble as a police officer. So miss me with your tears because I know that that's part of your script. It's a, it's a stunt. Exactly. Wait a minute. Did you all see where the judge in the Rittenhouse case ripped into the prosecutor about the defendant's constitutional right to remain silent. Prosecutors do that in Detroit all the time. And I've never seen a judge be so zealot at defending a defendant's right. The judge was acting like the defense attorney. He was on the defense team. What are you talking yeah. about? He was a part of oh, the defense. Yeah. He and sure he, was. He prosecutor for commenting on the defendant's right to silence. I said, prosecutors in Detroit have done that and still do it. And I've never seen a judge go above and beyond like this in defending a defendant's right to remain silent because of because of the type of case it was. You know, he shot BLM pro protesters. There was ever there was their case was loaded with race racist tone in it. Exactly. So last week there was a, a white lady who came to Detroit, or or she was here already. And she shot up her boyfriend's house, right? She shot up the house first time. He was in the house, her ex-boyfriend, with a two-year-old and three other people. She came back a second time, shot up the house again. She came back a third time when the police was there and shot up the house again, right? Three times. The police chased her, apprehended her, no problem. She's at the uh, probably at the detention center right now. Fast forward to Sunday, a lady at the gas station waving a gun, which we now know is a, a paint gun. Um, she shot up by multiple officers. And then when they find out after they killed this lady, she uh, had an air gun. And so the chief was saying how, you know, I guess they did things right. So my question is, are police trained to take kill shots? Yes. 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 And what happened to this, you know, disarming? Uh -uh. No disarming. You are taught... If you pull that weapon that you are to kill. They're taught to shoot me, right? I know I was taught that with mine. Um, <laughs> so I, I can't speak for them. And, you know, I do feel like they're police officers and they should have a certain amount of restraint. And, you know, I, I get all of that. But in that instant, they didn't know. They was having a conversation. What type of gun she had? It looked real from an instant, and your adrenaline pumping. You standing there, and somebody got a a gun. They didn't know it was an air gun. And then I can even go back. I was listening to the family saying, "Well, there might have been some mental illness. Well, why wasn't someone getting her some help in their family? Or you know, why is she wandering around waving an air gun? Why couldn't you have wrapped?" 
the family wrapped around her and got her some of the help that she needed so she wouldn't be at the gas station with an air pistol. So I'm not trying to negate the fact that perhaps the police could have done something else. But I know if someone's pointing what I think is a gun at me, they're talking between the then I'm going to do whatever I need to do to go home alive to my family. Right. See, and I that only that. happens to one that only happens to one set of people. Right. Because I have seen white folks disarmed by police all the time. They can have a gun. I don't know if y'all seen that video where the man had a machete and he was running after yeah. the police. And he the chased them. Yeah, he was chasing them in the police. But I mean, like, it, I have seen multiple videos where police are so long suffering with everybody who don't look like us. But most of the time, even when we're unarmed, we did. So for me, it's like, I need you to keep that same energy because right. you know Everyone. how to not shoot. You know how to talk people off a cliff. You know how to de-escalate. But when it comes to the color of my skin, all you thinking about is how you can shoot me down like a dog in the streets. That's to me where right because the officer had a conversation with that lady. Oh, that's what I was going to ask next. Wow, he had a, it's on video. Oh, no. prior to shooting her? Prior to shoot her, he hadn't pulled his the video at all. I thought they pulled up. She was just waving this thing, and so they had to take action. But if they were talking with her or whatever, you know, I don't know. I seen a whole video, and I don't know what state it was, but it was a white man with a gun. And the police officer pulled up, pulled his gun out. And the white man started chasing him with a gun. And he was running away from this guy. Instead, he didn't stand down and shoot him down. He was That's running so and still yelling, put your gun down, put your gun down. Yeah. Your I gun saw down. that too. I did it. I could not believe that video. I'm like, he is actually running away from this guy. Mm -hmm. But we are he was running for his life. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I have seen some arrests over the years where white suspects who are armed, you know, drop it. Just you know, and they, you know, they talk them to dropping the weapon, and there's the disparity when it's a black defendant with a weapon. They they get out and they just start shooting. Right. They, 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 yeah, I have seen that. That's happened to the 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 young boy in uh, what's that, Cleveland, Ohio? Oh yeah, Tamir. Oh. Is that Tamir Rice? Right. Tamir Rice. Yeah. Twelve year old, but I didn't know he was twelve years old. I didn't know it was a toy gun. I did because we're taking kill shots. Right. Immediately. I mean, and I get and I want everybody to go home at the end of the day. Right, yeah. Um, but protect and serve or protect and kill or just serve and kill. Cause you're not all of those things are so circumstantial. Like I got my CPL through the Wayne County Sheriff's Department. And um they were working in conjunction with the uh, Wayne County Community College. And we went to their training facility and they had a simulator in there, right? And they were simulating different things. And just the adrenaline from the simulator, I wasn't making the, the right choice, right? Um, I'm firing. So no matter how much training you had at flight, fight or flight response, you know, to try to think within that instant, mm -hmm. 
That's a, a huge undertaking. And I like what Roberto said earlier. I don't carry my gun because I don't want to have to make the wrong decision. Right. Right. They have only a certain amount of time to make that decision. Right. The window is very thin. And a lot of times it is the wrong decision. I'm not going to, you know, cover it up, but I just try to put myself in that shoe in their shoes. And if someone's waving a gun or anything at me, I don't know if I'm gonna stand there and be like, okay, you know, whatever. I just don't know how that works. But but during this season, you know, that could have been death by you know, police suicide by police type of incident. And this season, you know, people do that. You know, they want to be killed. And so, you know, they have to figure out how can I make that happen? Um, but in, I'm saying in this season. But I'm saying for Black people, it happens way too often. They don't get the empathy or the, well, maybe something's going on with this person. Let me see if I can shoot her in the leg or get her to fall over and, unarmor you know we just straight going for the kill and so i just have a problem i personally have a see a problem in that right um, you know it's a lot going on even when we look at um the police officer i believe they were at receiving hospital i'm not sure but the lady was kind of mentally ill or right. whatever and she spit mm -hmm. on the man and he, he bought beat the brakes off of her right um and, and was he wrong for that Yes, but even in my moment, I will say this, I, we have de-escalation procedures and all of that stuff at the agency, but if somebody asks me, if somebody spit in your place, what, spit in your face or wave a gun at you, what will you do? I would have to answer by saying, do you want to know what's written down? Or do you want to know what I'm going to do? If you want to know what I was taught to do and what's written in my procedure manual, I can tell you that. But what I'm actually going to do is very circumstantial. I don't know. Right. And that's the same situation with them. If they have to take accountability because they should have made a different decision and all of that. So I don't think it's... A lot of them are trigger happy. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But I have family members that are police officers, friends that are police officers, and they, they don't act like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a personality thing. It's that fight or flight response. It's the authority that they think they have. It's being untouchable. It's all of these other things combined. So when we say we see one police officer that's running from someone else and another one that's shooting, that's based on that person's personality and how they feel handling the situation at the time. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me, you probably can ask every one of them what they should do. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to it, do they actually do it? So now it comes to how much restraint. And I don't even know during the interview process or the training process, I've never been to a police academy. I don't know. But that's probably something they're not taught. Right. They're taught how to handle and respond and all of that stuff, shoot and all of that. But to have that amount of restraint in so a time where your life could possibly be taken also. They spend millions of dollars in de-escalation. They spend millions and millions and millions of dollars in de-escalation training. So for me, what I think is that with policing, 
what was policing even created for? I feel like we got to start there. If we start with what policing was created for, then we understand that, oh, that's just little Bobby. Let him go on home because policing wasn't, it wasn't created for little Bobby, right? It was created for now. Now we're in a time that's more blatant. You can't just let everybody off for doing stuff. You got to give them something, right? 90 days for killing three people, as Pastor Mike said. But it's the history of police and it's the legacy. It's everything that they stand for. Not to say that there aren't some good people in the midst of that, right? Because I have a cousin that is a Detroit police officer. And, I, man, I, I worry for him. You know what I'm saying? However, when I think of the history of police, then, man, it's a job that I couldn't take myself, right? Just based on knowing the foundation of it and what it stands for. But, you know, and I, and I think that's what people don't look at that they really, some officers need to look at. And I think that, that it could cause people to, to check themselves, but we're always going to see that fine line because of, of what policing was created to do. And it's maintaining its original, you know, foundation and what it, like I said, what it was, was created to do. Oh, and one last thing, and I do have to jump because I got to go pick my little cousin up. Um, you brought up something very important, Jay, when you said about the times that we're living in and, you know, people's mindsets and all of that. So I, shameless plug, my bad, but just is what it is. Um, <laughs> SOAR is doing weekly, um, uh, suicide awareness, suicide prevention workshops. And um, when we think about suicide, a lot of people think, oh, you need to go get people help. You need to do this. You need to do that. But there's something that we all can do to play a role to help save somebody's life. So in these, and we call them our lunch and learns, it's from 12 to one. In these times, we bring the community together and we give little tidbits of things that people can jump right in and do to spring into action to help save people's lives. You can find that at Eventbrite um, and look for SOAR, that's S-O-O-A-R, S-O-O-A-R. And uh, you'll be able to pull that up, schedule yourself. Um, we love to give people this information, especially now because these times around the holiday, people truly are suffering and we wanna get the information out. Oh, thanks, Trisha. So before we go, I just wanted to talk about one thing, the reason why we're here. And that's wrong for convictions. Um, and Mr. Abdul, I'm gonna let you take the lead on this. What's going on in the area of exonerations right now? Um, the year before we were seeing people exonerated like this. Mm -hmm. Not so much now. I, I see them in other states, but not so much here in Michigan. The election is over. <laughs> Thank you. Yep, I agree. In 2020, uh, Kim Worthy set a record number of people free. 2021, I think there were only four, and one of those was not a true exoneration. Ray Gray pled guilty to second-degree murder, so he still has a conviction following him for the rest of his life. The last time I think she freed somebody this year, God, it's been so long, what was it, February? So that's not a good sign of what 2022 holds. We keep hearing about the, the, the record number 28 people she freed. Okay, that was within the what, past two or three years. 2021, her numbers went down. We haven't heard from Kim Worthy. I, I have three cases pending before her conviction integrity unit. We haven't heard anything. The defendant, the, the defendant and their attorneys haven't heard anything. The attorneys I'm working with on the case, a lot of cases, we have, we're not hearing anything. And it's not, in my opinion, that's not a good sign. 
I don't know if they had a quota and maybe that 28 was their quota. I don't know. And, and, and this is intentional. They don't want us to know internally how their what their process is. Right. If you go to the CIU, they won't give you any answers, but yet they tell you they'll give you status reports. They're not doing that. There's this eerie silence, but we are all, we are hearing they got 3,000 3, murder trials backed up and she doesn't have the staff. All her staff jumped ship and they went to Oakland, Macomb County where they're getting paid more money. At least that's what she says. I suspect a lot of her staff probably jumped ship because they figure we worked hard to convict these people. Now you're letting them out. There's some there's some politics that I can only say so much about what's going on. I also um, have some concerns about the review process, if you will, where there are factually innocent defendants. The bar has been raised on them. Things have changed in terms of the burden they're putting on people to prove their innocence now that the election is over. It's true. And it's they, if you don't see this, you are willfully blind. I hope I hope 2022, we start seeing 28 more. People release 30, 50 more. There's a lot. There, this problem didn't go away. And right. here's another problem. There are certain guys who have been waiting three or four, three or three, three or three. The Conviction Integrity Unit was instituted in 2018 here. They've been waiting that long. But yet there were guys who took cuts in front of them and they're out already. Somebody explain this to me and they deserve an explanation. I'm not in prison, but they deserve an explanation. So while the Conviction Charity Unit and Kim Worthy are telling the media, we're so backlogged, but wait a minute, you were backlogged when you let the guy go in six months. And there's, there's, there's other guys who've been waiting for three years and you won't even give them the courtesy of, a, or their lawyers a courtesy of a status. You don't think you deserve, you don't think you should explain this, this disparity? And I do empathize with the innocent person still in prison who's been waiting for two years or, or and, and, and still doesn't have any idea when, if ever, they're going to do anything. And we keep hearing they don't have money. Well, is that our problem? You knew this when you instituted, well, you should have known it in 2018, that the wrongful conviction problem, the magnitude of it, was going to mushroom. And it, it has. Yeah. Here's another thing I find interesting. This Giglio Brady list. Remember we mm. all heard about that? How come Barbara Simon isn't on that list? Exactly. There was a deep, there was a very lengthy Detroit News report about her corruption that spanned 30 years about how dishonest she was. How come she's not on that list? How come James Tolbert isn't on that list who helped frame Devontae Sanford? We all know that list falls far short of the number of officers who should be on there. That list, we don't hear about that anymore. We, we, we don't hear about the officers who should have been added and have been added. You're not hearing. So this is not a good sign. In my opinion, I don't know how, if this conviction interview unit is going to be around any much longer. Right, because we're not hearing about nothing about those. We're hearing about the corruption that's going on now because it's um, political with the police officers that were doing the tow thing. Oh, yeah. But we're not talking about the seventy-something ones, or and maybe more now that couldn't even testify in court because they lie so much. We're not here, and you mentioned Barbara Simon. She didn't she work with Dana Nassau and Dana Nassau? Yeah, she got promoted to the Attorney General's office. Yes, she was 
when she worked at homicide, I got a couple of homicide files where she was the where she was the officer on the case, and she extracted she she coerced bogus confessions from these defendants, and she's not on that list. And you wonder why? Why isn't she on that list? So what if she's retired? You got other officers who are retired on that list. You you yeah. You got um who's that dirty cop at the uh, crime lab? He's on the list and he's not working now. That framed Desmond Ricks. But what my point is, don't start slacking when you're supposed to be a minister of justice and you instituted this conviction integrity unit. And by the way, she raised millions of dollars for the rape kid investigation. Remember that? Yeah. How come she's not trying to raise money for the conviction integrity unit while you're telling the public you're broke? Okay, I gotta stop y'all. We keep asking questions that we already know. <laughs> we already know That's why. Mine said, let's let's protest Kim Murphy. Why? So, oh, so, right. so 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 some folks can come tell us, don't be doing that. Because be doing that. Yeah. but listen, when all roads lead back to your office, do you want that exposed? When all roads lead now, I they're quick to call out those where the police frame folks and but when all roles lead back to your office of course you're not going to co-sign that there's a case right now code d is out the co other code d is in waiting I the transcript is clear that that police officers lied witnesses lied as a matter of fact Mm -hmm. the prosecutor in this case and i know i sat through every court day except when they announced him not guilty uh not guilty the prosecutor in this case withheld videos that proved yeah. the witnesses were lying mm -hmm. and as a matter of fact got who i don't know who got rid of it could have been officer nancy foster but somebody got rid of the tape that would have showed the angle of the murder and it shows in her case notes that she signed for it. And she on the stand, like, they said, well, you signed for it. Where did it go? I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, if that's what my notes say, that's what they say. Where? Why is not a judge holding this woman in contempt? Because we got transcripts where she testified to this. And the co-defendant, I know that case. The co-defendant is still locked up. He should of course benefit. you know this case. He should benefit from the same ruling that got his defendant acquitted. And let me tell you something else. I've noticed a pattern of when I say there's a politics behind these reviews and who they decide gets free and who doesn't. And I'm not ashamed to say so. There's some racism involved in that also because they are giving black criminal lawyers who represent defendants before the Conviction Integrity Unit grief. They're giving them, they're raising the bar on them. Yeah. But if you're from Sado or Dave Moran's group, look at the pattern. Most of those 28 who were released came from those two defense firms. It came from the- wow. And I, 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 I'm in contact with attorneys, African-American attorneys, who tell me that they sense the same thing. Fortunately, unfortunately for my client, he's not represented by somebody at Sado or Dave Moran's group. And there's a common denominator. And so, so, so this, is, this is not just political. There's some, you know, there's some racism involved. What gets, what, here's what upsets me when they talk about um, progressives. They're only progressives to an extent. Right. When they think you're stepping on them, they're going to remind you you're not the right color. 
Mm. And it's coming out. It's it's. I can't say anymore because there's going to be some grievances filed. What's what's going on? There's going to be some media attention because the cases are pending. But I'm telling you, I'm so upset because I see what's going on, and I have it in black and writing what they're doing to an African American attorney who has one of one of those cases in front of the Conviction Integrity Unit. This is why I can't go to these celebrations. This is why I will not praise these people because I'm telling you, my my own religious and moral conscience tells me don't do that because they are not. Fair. They're not put. They're not treating people fairly. They're supposed to be ministers of justice. No, they are not. There was a lot of politics in freeing the ones that they freed, and I'm. T it's not about you know. They say factual innocence, and and another here, here's here's another thing they say. If we can't prove factual innocence, we'll let them go on fundamental unfairness. So what that means are these Brady claims. And this is why these are all dismissals without prejudice, because what the prosecutor is essentially saying is we we can't agree that he he's innocent. But because of the Brady violation, we're going to let him go instead of retrying him. That's good, because you know what? In theory, you're, it is innocence. But the common denominator is those cases came from Dave Moran's group or Sato's group. Alhamdulillah, their clients benefited. They're out of prison. But the if, if, if a defendant has the unfortunate uh, circumstance that he's represented by an African-American attorney, I'm telling you what they're doing. They're giving them grief and they're raising the bar on them. I'm not making this up. I'm no, I know those attorneys and I can't mention their names. Yeah. It's wrong. Yeah. While yeah. all this celebration is going on, I know that this is going on behind the scenes. I can't participate in this. Right. I feel you on that. I want to thank you guys for joining us, joining me today for this special episode of Turning a Moment into a Movement. I can't say that we won't pop back in because we may pop back in. But Val and um, Mr. Abdul, I want you to know that you guys are always welcome to join us um, as we head to um, 2022. Um, look forward to us to have more conversations about wrongful convictions. This is what we're going to do. We're going to keep on talking about it. We're going to be like a nuisance to them until <laughs> they can't do nothing else but answer us. Mm -hmm. You know, this is insane. Um, we have to do more to free the innocent. Nobody that's innocent should be in a prison for a crime that they didn't do. Just, Just flat out. And I, so, I can't show up at rallies knowing I have cases pending in front of that unit where they're where they're not giving where they're not being equitable, and then look at the look at the defendant's son in his eyes, and explain to him why they're raising the bar on his father while they let other people go out, and I look like a hypocrite showing up at these rallies praising these people. Right. I, I can't do that. I gotta explain to these families. What are you doing? Why are you praising them? You saw, you know what they did to uh, to to Joe Blow. You know what they're doing to us. I don't get that either. I can't do it either. I think that's like an example of what's that Stockholm syndrome? Where you, where, no. where you, where you identified with your oppressor? Right. You, you love your you love your master more than your master loves himself. So I don't know, but I know master been good to us. What right. you talking about? Master been real good to us. Don't y'all come over here rocking the boat. You don't want Master to take away our rights, Nally. No, it, it, you know what? 
the psychology behind it is just sad. It really is. Even though it's subconsciously, they know this process is not working. Right. Yeah. But they need to explain to the public, how come nobody else is getting out lately? Right. Right. That should be all of our questions. If 22 got out last year or how, 28 or whatever, Only 28 or 30, 38 should have been out this year. And it's all of our problems because guess what? We're going to be the ones, it's our money that's paying these um, when they get, when they win their wrongful convictions. We're about to pay for this and we shouldn't have to pay. It should come from them. So, and that's another conversation we'll talk about in 2022. But thank you guys for joining us, joining me. Um, Go ahead, Mr. Abdul. I, I look forward to I look forward to 2022 still being, you know, an advocate and fighting on paper for those who are left behind. Those are the ones I think about every day. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, I am pleased with the ones who have been freed, but it's not enough. That's right. They want us to think that things are getting better. 2021 showed us it's not getting better it's in terms not. of the innocent people that are serving time in prison. Yeah. That's why we have to remain vigilant and we should do that in 2022. It's okay to feel good and it's okay to, you know, to celebrate somebody's freedom. But there, there, you have to be careful because how, you have to be careful how it's perceived by those that are still locked up. Exactly. And they're going to call me out on it and you out on it that, hey, I'm still here. And you right. know, I mean, and I, I, I speak for the ones I truly believe are innocent. I know there are some people that are guilty and I have turned down their cases. But that's, I, that's how... I hope in 2022 we can stay vigilant on this. Right. Val, what what would you like to leave us with? I would like to say that there is a role that everyone can play. This is where we need to be very proactive instead of reactive. I feel like when things are very hope high profile in the news and newsworthy at that time, you know, there's a lot of energy behind it, but then a, a week, a month later, all of the energy dies down. No, it's a continuous process. Right. Yes. We all suffer from burnout. It's not easy fighting and being on a front line or whatever, but this has to be a continuous process. There is something that everyone can do. Um, Survivor speaks, sponsored a um, webinar entitled, Are You an Activist? Because you don't have to be a paralegal. You don't have to have a relative that has been wrongfully convicted. You know, there is something that everyone can do. If the people are out there marching, you can bring some water or, you know, whatever. But there's a role we all can play. Let's not wait until it happens to someone in our family before we want to get involved and put some energy behind the movement. Yes. Because none of us is is free until all of us are free. Mm-hmm. So, you know, happy holidays, everyone. We'll see you next year. Uh, Mr. Adul, I, I know I'm going to see you again. And Val, I know I'm going to see you again. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be back on Turning a Moment into a Movement. Um, thank you for joining us.
Uh, I think Attorney Hugo Mack is going to be on something tomorrow uh, on the Nate Frazier show. So check him out. He's going to be talking about wrongful convictions as well. All right. Love you guys. Thank you so we much. We love you too. Thank Take you care. Guys. Good to see you, Roberto. Have a happy holiday. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs>